0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net.
1: Our sermon today will cover Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 54. And I'm going to read for us verses 14 through 28, found on page 817, If you're using the black Bibles in front of you, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also, excuse me, is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Sermon title this morning is The Savior's Evidence. You're going to see that a lot of the language that uh, Luke puts before us and what may, might feel like a bunch of just sort of random hodgepodge bits uh, put together if you went and uh, read these verses. Uh, beyond verse 28 and down to verse 54, you see there's a lot of interactions that are taking place. And Luke has specifically stuck these together because there is a golden thread. There is a theme that's being woven between them, and it has to do with just how people interact with the evidence that is before them when they hear Christ come, speak, speak, Why do people reject? Why do some receive? Luke is going to circle back around to this idea, and that's why our main idea this morning really boils down to this. If you take verses 14 through 54, I think you can truncate it down to this thought, that there is evidence which demands a response. There's evidence before us. We can see, we can hear, we can read, we can look at Christ, as it were, in the Scriptures, and there's evidence before us And that evidence demands a response, namely this response, to repent and believe in Jesus. To repent and to believe in Jesus. And so I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray. Uh, One of my favorite interactions in uh, the Scriptures is out of 1 Kings 18, where Elijah takes takes on the prophets of Baal, if you remember that encounter. And the reason why it's one of my favorite interactions is because of uh, the two things you see at play. Um, There's a very natural reality to the interaction, and there's a very supernatural reality to that interaction. In the natural way, what you see is Elijah do what prophets do. He builds an altar, cuts the sacrifices, sets up what needs to be set up before the Lord, He does his part. But what he knows is that the prophets of Baal and those around will not repent and believe just because of a natural work. And so he prays in such a way where he asks the Lord God to make himself known. And if you know that interaction, what happens is fire falls from heaven. Very supernatural comes and consumes the natural And if you remember, the response of the pagan prophets of Baal is to start screaming in light of the supernatural reality there, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. What does that mean for us this morning? If we're here just to hear a natural words of a natural work of a man, this is probably the most epic waste of of two hours on a Sunday. Epic waste. Like, I wouldn't even want to be here. But if it's possible that we can experience supernatural fire from heaven falling, supernatural light, supernatural eyes opening, supernatural God bringing death to life, to exposing to us the evidence of who Christ is, what he came to do, to bring us to that response where we repent and believe and cling to Christ because fire fell from heaven, sign me up for that any time, any day of the week. So that's what we're going to pray for. And my invitation is to not be a spectator, to be a participant in this prayer. Maybe look left, maybe look right, and go, Lord, will you move in such a First Kings 18 way in their life today so that they would come to repent and believe in Jesus. Does this make sense? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll get into the text. Father, that's what it is. I'm just looking at your word, and I think I see something there. Uh, I feel very Elijah-esque in this moment, uh, to, uh, as it were, to the best of my ability, with the gifts that you've given me. I leaned on you this week to be to build quote the altar to make the sacrifice of preaching, the sacrifice of praise. But Lord, I just know that like no natural work will change the hearts of men and women and convince us to go and tell others about. Jesus. So that's why I ask, Lord, in ways that I'm sure I don't quite fully grasp myself, but we are asking right now that supernatural fire would fall and consume this time to work in a way to where you, Holy Spirit, invade this place and work through the preaching of a mere man and turn the turn natural things, empowering them with supernatural things so that as we leave and as we go and even as we sit in here, our hearts would well up within us. Yahweh is God. Christ is King. He is Lord of Lords. And the right response in my heart is to repent of sin and turn to the Savior. Lord, convince us of these things, I beg you. Lord, break and smash upon stony hearts. Draw our eyes in kindness to lift them up and see Jesus gentle, lowly, loving, and kind. Bring us to repent and believe, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Here's a fistful of questions I think that will get us moving in the right trajectory here. We've got a lot of ground to cover today and so I'm going to be flying high in some of them uh like there's probably easily three sermons within this text um but i'm not going to burden you with three full-length sermons smashed together here so we're going to trim these down um but here is a good way i think to get us thinking through the golden thread that ties these sections together it's this question This. ask yourself why rejection why do people reject jesus why refusal why do some refuse why do some encounter Jesus only to stiff-arm him in unbelief? Is it illogical to respond to Jesus in belief? Is it, just like, does it, is it just unreasonable? You lay out the facts, you're like, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Like This thing just doesn't compute. Illogical, unreasonable to believe in Jesus. Or to ask that question another way, is there a lack of convincing evidence to respond to Jesus in belief? In a section that you remember from last week that deals very specifically with discipleship, pursuing Jesus, and that quiet, unseen, hidden growth of the kingdom, this section we find ourselves in, Luke presses pause in order to answer these kinds of questions. He's going to pull this thought off the back burner, bring it to the front burner, and encourage us to wrestle with these things because as is evident in our text this morning not everyone who sees the works of Jesus and not everyone who hears the words of Jesus they don't they don't respond to Jesus with that denying dying followership that he calls for and what Luke is going to show us is that it's not due to a lack of evidence It's not due to the fact that it's unreasonable. As a matter of fact, Luke says it's going to come down to that sort of decided, hard-hearted, hypocritical unbelief where a person just refuses to see or they're seeing and then they just refuse to believe. So, in order to deepen the gospel certainty of his audience, remember Luke is writing a letter to a man named Theophilus. And he told us way back in chapter one Theophilus, I'm writing to you so that you can be certain. I want certainty to deepen in the realities of the gospel. Here is 24 chapters of the life of Christ so that you can walk away and be certain. So what does Luke want us to be certain about by looking at these things? He wants us to have gospel certainty by answering these kinds of questions. He's going to answer why some reject the king and his kingdom, and then what's the result of that in someone's life if they do reject. In short, he wants us to see that there is evidence which demands the response to repent and believe in Jesus. So starting in verse 14, what can we discover? We discover this. There is logic which demands a right response. There's logic which demands a right response. That's what you see in the the encounter, this section here that Michelle read for us here in verses 14 through 28. So just look at how Luke begins to write. Verse 14, now Jesus Luke just rolls us right in. Remember, he was talking about prayer. Now prayer time is done. And so he just, boom, rolls us right into this encounter where Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, lo and behold, this mute man spoke and the people marveled. So Luke begins by telling us about a man who was speechless because a demon who was indwelling him had made him speechless. But in the display of power, Jesus comes, Jesus casts out this demon, the mute man speaks, and the people who are watching the words, the works of Jesus, they stand there in amazement of what Jesus is doing, who he is. Luke, through his gospel, has been making clear that this kind of work of Jesus is very clear evidence that God's long-promised Savior has arrived. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, if you can remember in your mind when we were working through the Nazareth synagogue encounter that Jesus had, Jesus goes to the scroll, pulls forward Isaiah, and begins to speak and begins to say, the Spirit of God is upon me. It's filling me. And he's like, I'm going to come and I'm here. I'm going to set the oppressed free. I'm going to break captives loose. Blind are going to be able to see. And because you're seeing these things, not just physically, but spiritually, what you need to know is that the long promised savior, the one whom the prophets kept saying, keep your eyes open. He's going to come. He's going to show up. He's going to be here. Jesus says, because you're seeing these things and will see these things, you need to know I am the one you've been waiting for. So what do we have right here? Another piece of evidence is pressed right before the crowds, the people who are following. So the question then becomes, surely the response is going to be positive. But we begin to ask the question, well, will it though? Is this crowd now ready to receive Jesus as the Messiah, the long-promised Savior who's going to come? Will they embrace Him as God's Redeemer? Are we about to see a mass following of Jesus in this crowd? And the short and obvious answer is no. Despite Jesus' obvious divine power displayed, some observe the evidence and conclude this about what they have just saw. Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, The prince of demons, that's where he gets his power to do all this stuff. While others come along and say, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying about the whole power of Satan kind of thing that's going on right now. I'm not quite sure about that, but let's test him. Let's keep testing him and keep seeking from him a sign from heaven so that we can come and maybe draw a conclusion. So some are saying the evidence before us is this. It's obviously demonic. And some are saying, I don't know that this evidence is enough to convince. We want more. 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 So what does Jesus do? Well, he challenges those who would not believe in him to think logically. That's what you see starting off in verse 17. Jesus is going to give two very strong refutations to those Beelzebul accusations that are coming against him. So in verse 17, Luke tells us that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, begins to refute these accusations they're laying at his feet. First, he lays out a very simple truth there in verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. This is just the universal truth. You just need to know this, that if an army goes to war and that army turns around and begins to wage war against itself, that army is going to decimate itself. But that's not the way that works. People they don't think in that way. So think about it, Jesus says to these who are making accusations against Him. You say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Satan minus Satan would equal his destruction. But you have to know that Satan is not trying to destroy himself. Yes, it is true, Satan is evil, but Satan is not an idiot. He's not a moron. He's not waging war against himself. And then he moves into verse 19 and says, let me just pose another question to you to help you think logically along these lines here. If it's true that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, as you say, then here's my question. By whom do your sons cast out demons? See, Jesus wasn't the only one going around setting souls that were in bondage free. Apparently there were others. Followers of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious rulers, God was using them in some ways. So apparently, there were Jewish exorcists going around doing the exact same thing as Jesus, but notice they don't have a beef with them. The point is that the people, the crowds that Jesus is talking to, what is being exposed is this they have a double standard. And their double standard exposes their hard-hearted animosity that they harbor towards Jesus Christ. No, says Jesus, to those who are laying this Beelzebub's power accusation before Him. He's saying, listen, you've grabbed the wrong end of the stick. I'm not casting out demons by Beelzebub's power, but rather it is by God's power and it's by God's power alone. It's by God's power and nothing else. That's what's going on in verse 20 when he says there in your Bible, uh, he's making that reference to the finger of God kind of thing. That finger of God language, if you go back, the only other time it's referenced is back in Exodus chapter 8, if my mind serves me right, it's the whole plagues kind of thing. The first two plagues come, the magicians of Pharaoh are able to imitate those first two plagues. Then plague three comes around The magicians can no longer imitate this anymore. And they step back and they look at Pharaoh says, this is happening because of the finger of God. In other words, this is happening because God is at work and not our God's. The God. And so Jesus tapping into that language is saying what you guys are seeing is this. It is the finger of God at work. It is God's power present and in your face and it's nothing else. Therefore, if it is by the finger of God that I'm casting out demons, then the only right conclusion to draw is this. The kingdom of God has come You. It's here and it's in your face. The evidence is as present as the nose on your face. Ultimately, guys, your whole Beelzebul argument is just logically absurd. So there's the invitation open your eyes, see. With your mind, grasp this and understand verse 21 that when a strong man... So Jesus is moving into another illustration. Jesus is loving them. He's not just saying, guys, you got it wrong, and then like smacking them down. He's inviting them to reason and think. He says, you guys are making an accusation. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. And now He's putting an illustration before them. He's wooing them. He's inviting them to come and see and wrestle with these things. He says, just think about this, guys. When a strong man... Imagine the strongest man you can conjure up in your mind's eye. He's fully armed. He's guarding his own palace. And I think what we would all say is this, that his goods are going to be safe because when a strong man is fully armored and guarding his palace, ain't nobody going to come and plunder his palace. That is, says Jesus, until one stronger than him shows up. And when a strong man bumps into a stronger man, guess what? The stronger man ain't so strong anymore. And the stronger man can then go and begin to plunder this man's palace. He attacks him. He overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which the strong man was trusting and he divides his spoil. Implication being he is raiding that man's house and he is able to do what he wants to do because a strong man has met one who is stronger. In this illustration, Jesus is wooing the people to see the strong man is Satan. The prince of demons is armored up. The prince of demons is guarding his palace and goods namely the souls and the lives of men and women but the fact of the matter is this Jesus has appeared to destroy the works of the devil praise God that's the good news of Christmas baby Jesus was born because the baby in the manger is going to be the one who stands over Satan with his foot on his neck as the conquered foe is submitted to the stronger man himself See, any strong man seems to rule the day, that is, until one stronger than he comes along, proving his superior strength. And by attacking, overcoming, taking, and dividing, Jesus says, here's the point. I am the stronger man who is plundering Satan's dark kingdom. The evidence in this scenario is it's literally before you. Casting out demons isn't just some like magic, magic card trick. It's not something you do at the party whenever it starts to get real dull. It's like, Jesus, do something cool. And he's like, all right, I'll get up and we'll, we'll, we'll fire the party back up. Woo, cast out a demon. No, that, that's not what's going on. The power and the presence of the king is literally advancing. He says the kingdom of God is coming to you. It's right there in front of their face. He's plundering Satan's dark kingdom. One of my favorite set of verses are in Colossians 1 where Paul talks about the blood of Christ and the work of the cross, and he begins to say and use this language about how the Father has delivered you, and he is in the business of transferring people out of the domain of darkness and transplanting them into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Who has the power to plunder Satan's dark kingdom? king jesus has the power to go and rob souls from eternal death out of that kingdom and plant them into his kingdom and make them eternal citizens sons and daughters who know eternal life and because of his cross and his resurrection from the dead jesus stands with his foot on the neck of his conquered foe thus jesus says in verse 23 it is time to take sides At this stage in the game in Luke's gospel, it's not that Jesus was moving in the shadows, but he's—he's—he's. If there ever was, he's out. He's looking at people and says, "The line in the sand. It's time to make a decision. The time to choose the side. If it's true that I'm casting out demons because of what I've read from Isaiah and Luke 4 is true about me, it's time to choose sides." As Jesus goes into application mode, he makes very clear there is no neutrality in this warfare. There's no neutrality in this warfare. Why? For whoever is not with me is against me. If you're with me, you're with me. If you're not with me, you're against me. No, no neutrality. You can't, you can't, there's no, there's no spiritual straddling defense. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The choice is truly binary. The choice is truly either or, says Jesus. There is no such thing as a spiritual Switzerland for men and women to retreat. We can't just move to some spiritual island called Switzerland and be like, yeah, I'm not for or against Jesus and I'm really okay. Jesus says, no. If you're with me, you're with me. If you're against me, you're against me. If you're not quite sure what you're doing or if you're not quite sure where you land, then you're actually still even against me. No decision is still a decision is what he's saying. Switzerland or Satan is scattering and destroying. Jesus is gathering and building. We must make a choice. And if we choose to make no choice, Jesus says we're really... Choosing against Him. Now, some will hear this, but still strive to exist in some kind of lukewarm spiritual neutrality. I've seen it. I've lived there before myself, before Jesus saved me. Some hear this, And go, yeah, either or, I'm in or I'm out, side Satan, side Jesus, yeah, but still, I think there's still some way to manipulate lukewarm spiritual neutrality here. But Notice that in verse 24 and following, Jesus goes into his second application point, and it's this, that neutral zone spirituality actually results in ruin. People try to live there, but it results in ruin. That's what Jesus is getting at in this story when he talks about this unclean spirit has gone out of the person and then it leaves and it comes back and it finds the house put in order and he begins to look and say, okay, like, yeah, we're going to actually move back into this, this house. Notice. Then, verse 24, Jesus doesn't give a reason, but there's just some unknown reason that this unclean spirit decides to leave. It's interesting. Notice he refers to the human that he was indwelling as his house. The demon says, This was my house. And I was in charge of the house. He leaves, and the man's condition immediately improves, right? It says there in verse 25, His house, this house was swept and put in order. But notice that just like nature abhors a vacuum, spiritual vacuums can't exist. A spiritual vacuum unfilled with commitment to Jesus leaves itself open to spiritual ruin. And notice this is exactly what happens to the person in Jesus' illustration. The idea is that while he was indwelled, occupied, so to speak, in enemy territory, this unclean spirit in the illustration Jesus is using to drive home this idea of no neutrality when it comes to this warfare of King Jesus or Prince Satan is that when Prince Satan and his minions like vacate a place When that person finds himself in that space, yes, it might be good for them for a bit, but if that vacuum that's left behind, so to speak, does not get filled with commitment to Christ, obedience to Christ, submission to Christ, repentance of sin, and turning to salvation in Christ alone, that believed neutrality will actually result in the ruin of that person the unclean spirit returns with seven other spirits more evil than itself and Jesus says the last state of that person was worse than the first so Jesus is just giving an application point there saying guys like I'm I'm pressing you to not live in the realm of neutrality because there is no neutrality and unbelief might lead you to believe that it is okay that you are neutral. I'm not really, I don't really, I'm definitely not pro-Satan, but I'm not pro-Jesus either. I'm just going to ride in the middle. And Jesus says, no, the fact that you're not pro-Jesus means that you're siding with Satan. Notice that taking sides with Jesus means much more than saying the right things. That's what's going on in verse 27. Jesus is speaking. A woman cries out. Basically, in verse 27, as Jesus is speaking, cries out, Jesus, your mom's awesome. Your mom rocks. Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast at which you nursed. That's basically saying Mary is phenomenal. It's oh, not wrong. She's a truly blessed woman. Just go back and read the, uh, the birth account. But notice this, taking sides with Jesus means more than just saying the right things, just doing the right things, externally ordering our lives to look like the right things. You know as well as I do, just take it into the military side of things. Spies exist. There's a way for an enemy to put on a uniform to make it look like they're on the side of the good guys, but really... It's subversive, you know that their heart is not really for the good guys in the military illustration. So, Jesus is just saying, like, listen, taking sides in this cosmic battle here of salvation for the souls of men and women, it's more than just saying the right things. But notice that many attempt to side with Jesus through just adjusting the externals. They get more spiritual, or they try to beef up their church attendance, or they go buy a bigger Bible, or they start trying to go to more Bible studies, or they start trying to pray a bit more, do these things. They try to modify their behavior in the pursuit of self-help religion, and so on, and so on, and so on. But Jesus is saying this, that will not cut it. The way that we can see how someone is pursuing Christ, denying self, Dying daily and following Christ because Christ is their commander as it were. He is their king. Truly saved by Christ is this. When they hear the word of God and keep it. That's how you can know when someone is truly on the side of King Jesus. Thus the invitation from Jesus. Take care how you hear. See his works, hear his words, embrace him by faith as the Satan-conquering, sin-defeating Savior he is. This is the logic which demands a right response. But notice point number two, there is the evidence which calls for repentance. The evidence which calls for repentance. This is verses 29 through 36. Notice that Jesus has only addressed those who are accusing him of casting out demons by the prince of demons. There were also those badgering him for a sign from heaven. Remember that? There are two groups. He's addressed group 1. He's now beginning to address group 2 in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, so he turns to them and he begins to say to them, "This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah," he says. So He's going to help them see that there's evidence before them and this evidence. They don't need more evidence. There is evidence at their disposal right now and that evidence calls for repentance. As it says in verse 17, Jesus knows there's thoughts, thus He knows that if casting out a demon doesn't satisfy, then nothing will. For some, there's just never enough evidence because after seeing a sign, guess what? They will eventually want signs that the signs are really Signs. So they just keep wanting more and more and more and more and more. Thus, their request for a sign from heaven isn't faith-seeking understanding, but it's instead actually just unbelief in action is what it boils down to. It's unbelief in action. Their evidence before this crowd calls for repentance. You might ask the question, well, what evidence is before this crowd? Like, what evidence is here? It's the evidence right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ that something greater than Solomon is right in front of them. That something greater than Jonah is staring them in the face. That's why Jesus says, starting there in verse 31 and 32, the queen of the south. First Kings 10, 2 Kings 10, I think, one, one of those two there, you meet the queen of Sheba. Queen of the South, probably from the African continent. That's who he's referencing here. She will rise up with the judgment, J- Jesus says, with the men of this generation, and she will condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Then Jesus says, do you remember that whole jonah Nineveh thing? He says the men of Nineveh, evil, wicked, Gentile Ninevites, are going to rise up with the judgment and with this generation and condemn this generation for the evil, wicked... Ninevites heard the good news of redemption in the God who saves, and guess what they did? They repented. Jesus's point is that when a Gentile queen heard Solomon's wisdom, she marveled at what was in front of her, laid hold of God's truth through Solomon, and believed. When Jonah came preaching to the Gentiles in Nineveh, guess what? They heard what he was saying, they repented. And they believed at what they heard. The sign of Jonah has to do with him, the prophet Jonah, being swallowed up by a great fish. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, at this particular stage, when Jesus is talking, he's saying, Listen, in a very short while, I'm about to be the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah. I'm going to die And I'm going to go into the belly of the earth, just like Jonah went into the belly of the fish. And But just like Jonah came out of the belly of the fish three days later, I'm going to come out of the belly of the earth and you will see me alive. And that is the sign you need to see and know in order to understand the evidence that's right before you. So often, friends, like we're literally what, two Sundays away? from blowing the roof off this place, because we're going to be celebrating this idea. It's not a mistake that the Bible leans so heavily on the resurrection. Listen, if Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, we are wasting our times epically. But we don't follow a dead Savior. We follow a resurrected Savior. And that is the singular sign the Bible always goes back to and says, listen, I know you want more. I know you want more. I know you want more. But before you even begin to get there, you must wrestle with this singular sign. Did Jesus resurrect from the dead? There's eyewitness testimony to it. There's people who can say, I saw him alive. I saw him dead. I saw him buried. I saw him alive after he had died. This is the evidence that we need to wrestle with. This is the evidence that demands a response, calls for repentance. So here stands in the midst of this crowd, the one who will in short order be the fulfillment of Jonah's sign in his crucifixion and burial. Wisdom himself incarnate before them, but yet somehow can't see it. That's what Jesus is talking about with all this light language in verses 33 through 36. He's just basically saying this, guys, you've got to be careful how you see. Be careful how you see. The people in this moment here, they see physically, but they don't see spiritually. And it's their spiritual blindness that has them standing like a physical blind man in the noonday sun. If you've ever seen someone physically blind standing in the noonday sun, what are they? They are surrounded by light but still can't see. Some of us here this morning are like the physical blind man standing in the new nason. Surrounded by the light and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrounded by the light of the evidence in scripture. Surrounded by the light of the gospel of a resurrected king. And yet blind. Face to face with who He is, the light and life of men. Yet these that Jesus is talking to, they're blind to their spiritual need and they're full of darkness. You see, each of us here this morning, if you just wanted to break that binary, you're either with me or against me idea, if you wanted to lay it on top of this point, it really just comes down to this we're either controlled by the light or we're controlled by darkness. There's no squidgy middle. The frightening thing is that some people have so hardened themselves against the Lord that they cannot tell the difference. Convinced we're in the light, but truly in the dark. They think they're following the light, when in reality, they're following the darkness. So Luke says, let me wrap this up for you guys. Let me wrap this up by showing what this blindness looks like, and that's just what that last thing is when Jesus turns to that whole woe conversation between the Pharisee, And the religious lawyer, he's going to say, let me just roll out exhibits A and B of what it looks like to be in your mind convinced I'm in the light, but truly in the dark. And that's point number three, the hypocrisy, which ends in judgment. Having refused to respond to the logic concerning his identity or his call for repentance, the Pharisee and the religious lawyer prove they actually dwell in darkness. Their whole life deals with the paraphernalia of light. Think about that. They're in the scriptures, they're going to church, they have their Bibles, they're doing the prayer thing. Everything about them, if someone stands back and goes like, yeah, I think this person would be one who's truly walking in the light. But Jesus is going to come along and say yes, everything externally on the outside looks like they are one who is submitting to the life and light of men but when you get beyond the external and get to the internal heart what you discover is it's death it's darkness verse 38 points made very clear when the pharisee looks at jesus and is flabbergasted flat out astonished to see that jesus did not wash his hands before dinner What is this? This is just the Pharisee getting worked up about ceremonial hand-washing. If you're like, what's that about? Hey, we preached a whole sermon series in the book of Leviticus. Go and use these things to assist yourself to go to sleep at night, and then maybe you'll actually learn something as well about what all the Pharisees getting worked up about. But notice this. Notice this. The Pharisee cannot see the Savior on account of his tradition. His tradition is blinding him to who is in front of him. His hyper-focus on the external is blinding him to the internal. In other words, he is happy to be all about cleanliness of hands and cups, but internally, spiritually, he's full of greed, wickedness. He's dead in sin. The Pharisee's basic error, error was this. He was thinking that right standing with God was only a matter of external actions. And here was the problem. Not only was the Pharisee leading himself astray with his thinking, but his hypocrisy was actually leading others astray as well. Thus, with brutal honesty, Jesus pierces his darkness with pronouncements of woe. W-O-E, woe. What is this? These are pronouncements of, of judgment. Notice this isn't Jesus. Listen listen to me here. Like, if you haven't paid attention to nothing, I, I promise we're like five minutes out. I, I'm asking you to tune in. Listen to this. When you hear Jesus make his pronouncements of woe, don't picture in your mind's eyes some sort of like Grinchian, curled up, gleeful, ah, like screwing people to the stick and post and he just loves it. Man, he's fist pumping because he's punking these people out. Don't have that image in your mind. Jesus isn't gleefully screwing the Pharisees to the sticking post. Instead, Jesus, listen, listen, Jesus is lovingly stripping the scales from this man's eyes so that he might see Jesus repent and believe. Listen, friends, you have to know this. It is loving to approach someone who is convinced they're in the light, but is truly dead in their sins and darkness. Not with a gleeful, I'm superior, you're inferior, but with a humble heart motivation of love that recognizes if this Pharisee here goes to his grave, he will die an eternal death separated from God. And Jesus lovingly right now is going to lay a very admitted scalpel-like word across the heart of this Pharisee so that he can peel this man's heart open and pull scales from his eyes so that this man can truly see what he is failing to see. He exposes to this man his neglect of justice and the love of God in verse 42. He exposes this man's love of self in verse 43. And he exposes the absolute failure of this man's external religion in verses 44. Notice in verse 45, as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you have the religious lawyers. These are two different groups. The Pharisees would have been like the preachers of the day. The religious lawyers would have been the ones who knew their Bible forward and backward and the ones building up all like the scriptural, doctrinal truths that the Pharisees would then go out and begin to preach and apply and give to the people. So when Jesus is saying, woe to you guys for the way that you go out and operate, the religious lawyer knows this. Like, like Jesus is punking us out by calling talking to this guy in this way. That's what he says in verse 45. The pride of this religious lawyer is pricked when he says to Jesus, teacher, in saying these things, like, you're insulting us too. But this only spurs Jesus to notice again, lovingly pull open the shade of this man's eyes, flooding him with the light of future judgment to come if he does not repent. Jesus exposes to the lawyer the legalism He imposes, the heart-hardening traditions He keeps, and the knowledge of God that He's locking up, hindering Himself and others from entering into God's kingdom. And it's at this stage... Jesus pronounces the woes and then he is done. It's at this stage that the Pharisee and the lawyer stand before Jesus in probably one of the most enviable positions that anyone could ever be. Enviable positions. And you're sitting here saying, how in the world can the Pharisee and the lawyer on the receiving end of woe, 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 woe woe, be in an enviable position? answer comes down to this. I say enviable because Jesus was loving them in this moment. In love with their souls, Jesus is speaking like this. The pronouncement of judgment to come was true, Jesus is saying. You will be on the receiving end of eternal death, but only if you unreasonably respond wrongly to the evidence before you. So people build up barriers and blockers to Jesus all the time. Jesus, in six pronouncements, came and said, blockade one, removed. Blockade two, removed. Blockade three removed, four removed, five removed, six removed. And now, in a sense, they're standing sort of naked and unashamed before Jesus, and they have this choice sort of before them. Now they can see clearly, like, what is he going to do? What are they going to do? Are they going to have him been stripped down to no more things to hide behind? Are they going to repent and believe and fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? Or will they quickly go, build the walls right back up? stiff arm and say, don't want this, and go the other way. Having been exposed, are they going to repent and believe in Jesus for eternal life, or will they harden their hearts into deeper and further callousness? You guys know the answer. In their enviable position, Luke tells us in verse 53, they chose the latter. They begin to press Jesus hard, provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. But can I say this to you this morning? If you're here this morning and external religion has failed you, trying to play the Pharisee game has failed you, trying to play the churchy game has failed you, you. Trying to play the Christianity game has failed you. Trying to be the I'm a good person has failed you. Trying to put on a show for others so others will think of you in a certain way as it relates to Christianity kind of stuff has failed you. Know this, it has failed you and it should fail you. And Jesus is talking to you right now saying you weren't meant to find salvation in any of those things anyway. So don't go and try to anchor your hope in something else that will fail you. Come and anchor your hope of salvation on me who is the life and the light of men. You too are in an enviable position this morning. How will you respond to the evidence That is before you. If your eyes are being opened to see your need for Jesus, if there was something like what I just said there, you're like, yeah, like the Jesus game, the churchy game, like the community group game, the, like I'm trying to put on this performance kind of game. It is tiring. It is boring. It is duty. It is not delight. I do not want anything to do with this. I would say, I agree with you. I don't want anything to do with that. But if your eyes are beginning to see, like, is is there a better way that maybe I've missed? And it's just collapsing on Jesus alone? I would say that is worthy of your pursuit. And the way that you're even able to see this right now is because Jesus is opening your eyes to see it. So thank God for opening your eyes to clearly see your need for Jesus and then to respond with the only right response. Repent of sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus I've spoken words, but the mere words of men are pretty impotent, apart from your empowering. And so, Lord, if there was truth spoken from what I've said, Lord, I'm asking you to pierce the hearts. Lord, I can only assume that in a room like that we find ourselves in, that there are some here today who are struggling with belief. May have drawn the conclusion that while I am near to the things of Christ, I'm actually decidedly far. Don't want anything to do with belief blind maybe to the things of true joy and salvation. Lord, I I, I cannot convince, I do not have that power, but I'm begging you in your kindness to pierce hearts. Holy Spirit, I'm asking with vice grip conviction that you would lay hold of hearts this morning and turn the hearts and minds of men and women to salvation in Jesus Christ alone. You alone have that strength. You alone have that power. And that's what we ask you to do. It's in your name, King Jesus, that I pray these things. Amen.